Hi, this is Ron Hutchinson, one of the co-founders of the Vitaphone Project. Hi, my name is Vince Giordano, and I lead a orchestra called the Nighthawks, Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks. And I've been involved with the music from the 1920s and 30s for 50 years now. I was uh, very fortunate to be called by Dick Hyman and worked with him in many of the Woody Allen films like Zelig and Sweet and Low Down, and, and then later with my band, working in films like The Cotton Club, Finding Forrester, and The Aviator. And we're going to talk you through the jazz singer, really the first commercially successful sound feature film, certainly not the first sound film, directed by Alan Crossland, who previously directed Don Juan, which was the first feature with synchronized music and sound effects, but not uh, dialogue, right, Vince? That's right. It's really... Uh was a very important film in Talking Pictures. Yeah, and I think one of the things people forget is that the original star was not the world's greatest entertainer, Al Jolson, but in fact, George Jessel, later known as the Toastmaster General of the United States. Jessel had actually been appearing in The Jazz Singer on Broadway starting in 1925 and was signed to do The Jazz Singer. And uh, when he found out he was going to have to sing and speak in it also, he asked for more money. And that gave the Warner Brothers the ability to leverage and get Al Jolson, who by this time was a huge hit in a short subject, which, Vince, you were part of the restoration of the Plantation Act. Yes, I think the Warner Brothers really found that Jessel was great, but Jolson had a bigger appeal and bigger name. Here's the east, the Lower East Side, New York City. Yeah, and what happened was Crossland and crew actually went out to the East Coast two months before Jolson was even on the scene at the studio to film these scenes in New York and then returned to the Warner Brothers Sunset Boulevard studios to begin vitaphoning or filming the Jolson scenes. Playing Cantor Rabinowitz is... Warner Oland, who I guess his, his claim to fame in most minds, uh, film buffs' minds, was later at Fox Studios playing Charlie Chan. But he had a pretty extensive career in silent films. Very versatile actor who played all kinds of different roles. And then the mother is uh, Eugenie Besserer. We need to remember that the film debuted October 6, 1927, and most people saw the film initially as a silent. There were only two theaters in the whole country that could show Vitaphone films, films with sound. So here, this scene obviously is not synchronized. It's kind of recorded after the fact. And for those of you who don't know the Vitaphone process, in a nutshell, what it was developed by Bell Labs and uh, Western Electric. And what it did was it used one motor to drive the camera and the recording device that recorded on a 16-inch disc, the sound portion. So the sound and picture were separate elements. And they would start the film at a precise spot as they also started the picture. 
the picture and the sound start at a precise spot. And what would happen is in the theater, they would have these huge 16-inch discs on a turntable at the projector, put the film in a precise spot, started the two, and actually they stayed in synchronization. But it was a pretty clunky system in terms of not being able to go outside for filming. You needed to have the camera people in booths. Here's another scene shot by Crossland a couple of months before Jolson arrived at the studio. And by about March of 1930, even Warner Brothers, which championed the disc system as opposed to the still-used sound-on-film system, they abandoned them and went over to sound-on-film also, much more mobile, much easier to edit. There was a lot of money involved in this whole new uh, Vitaphone process, and the companies like Warner Brothers and Hal Roach put a lot of money in this, and they weren't readily uh, wanting to just abandon all this uh, really quickly because they just put a lot of money into it. So they had you know, still made the discs for the films to a lot of the smaller theaters, but eventually they really did go to sound on film, but I don't think they were really too happy about announcing it to the world that in a way they, they had to change the process to, to, to catch up with the rest of the industry. One uh, disc would last about a full reel, turning at 33 and a third. So that speed was adopted about 25 years later by the recording industry for LPs. So a lot of the technology developed for this process, the Vitaphone process, later was used for radio transcriptions, LPs for the home, and so on. That was about 15 minutes, correct? Uh, yeah, about that, 12 to 15 minutes is one reel of film. But that's a good point, Vince. When this first came out, the very first showings, since they filmed all of Jolson's singing and talking scenes separately over a nine-day period, what they did was they had a disc for every single Jolson synchronized portion. So the poor theater would get 25 or 30 of these huge discs and have to switch back and forth from projector to projector dozens of times. Eventually, they combined everything onto one disc, lasting, as you said, uh, about 12 to 15 minutes. So everything was on on one. Now, Vince, didn't electrical recording come in around the time, a little earlier than this? Yes, uh, by 1925. I mean, most folks still had the old wind-up acoustic phonograph, uh, which had a very limited frequency. And I think hearing these early sound films like The Jazz Singer with the full, rich, booming bass was a really a revelation for the audience out there. This was something new and, and got very excited reviews. Yeah. Yeah, usually all the attempts at sound films, we need to remember, this is not the first sound film. Uh, There were attempts from the very beginning with Edison to synchronize uh, sound and picture, working with cylinders and discs, pulleys that the rats chewed on, I understand, on the the Edison system. And it became synonymous with how do you want to lose money in show business by investing in the latest sound movie technology. So it was really only the Warner Brothers, particularly the brother Sam Warner, who had the vision of being able to provide, really at first, symphonic scores and sound effects to the smallest theater in the country. Not uh, talking. It was he who said, who wants to hear actors talk? (laughs) So, you know, while he he grasped the value of providing musical scores, so a little theater with a piano could, could really now show a film with the same kind of music quality as a New York movie palace, what really happened was the shorts that accompanied Don Juan were the real hit. 
Roy Smek, who was uh, what a, a banjoist, a ukulele player. Yes, the Wizard of the Strings. He played about a half a dozen very interesting instruments, like the ukulele and the banjo and the harmonica at the same time. A, a real wonderful showman. Yeah, and and it was those shorts that accompanied Don Juan that were the real hit. And then suddenly light bulb went on in Sam Moore's mind that, hey, you know, we can bring the biggest names in show business, and certainly there's no bigger name than Al Jolson, the world's greatest entertainer, right. to the smallest theater in a can. Uh, imagine a theater uh, that, you know, could never afford in a million years top names like Burns and Allen or Jack Benny or, uh, you know, Georgie Price or any of these big stars of the period could in a can for $5 rental show these people on the big screen. So the shorts production really cranked up after Don Juan. And by the time uh, this film came out, Warner Brothers had made over 150 short subjects with vaudevillians, opera stars, and so on. And uh, really the, the race was off for the transition to sound. It's wonderful to hear some of this classical music too, which is very impressive. I'm sure a lot of the folks in the small towns had never heard a full symphonic orchestra. And there is this wonderful music coming out of the speakers. Yeah. We need to remember also that while the technology was really heralded at the time, the film's plot was considered, even in the Broadway play, to be kind of hackneyed and corny. But you know what? That didn't matter because, you know, people really uh, expected to hear Jolson you know, whether it was a hammy performance or not. I think it was uh, Vince, the New York Herald Tribune called it a pleasant enough sentimental orgy that stuck with me. <laughs> and so even then, if it seems corny now, the people then even knew that. But it didn't matter, did it? They, they bought it. Yep. So everything we've seen so far was shot by Alan Crossland starting two months before Jolson. Jolson had done some tests. It's not clear if they were sound tests in end of May, early June of 1927. This film was made during August and September of 27, and it was rushed to the theaters for a, an October 6th release. But everything we've seen so far had been shot really before Jolson arrived at the studio and really had any involvement. The uh, wonderful music score here had a little bit more advanced technology than we think of today. They actually had four microphone circuits, and uh, two of the microphones were in front of the orchestra, and then later for the uh, uh, live scenes with Jolson, they used another two. So they really understood that they couldn't skimp with one little microphone. They did a lot of testing and a lot of work, and there's a lot of experience that's gone into this film. I think with this process, the Vitaphone process, as great as it was, there was room for error, and uh, with with a, a phonograph disc and a and a film camera, you know, you had to to make sure that everything was running at the same time. And uh, but I think they really paid the attention to the detail of getting the microphones in the right place, and that they were able to make it, uh, like Ron mentioned, in such a short time. It's 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 pretty amazing. This is uh, Cantor Josef Rosenblatt, the voice that you're hearing right now, who was one of the uh, most famous of the cantors of that time, and he made a lot of Victor recordings, and he was well-renowned. So, again, Warner uh, really chose top talent for, for this film. Yeah. Now, this scene uh, also is not synchronized, as you can tell, 
it is very close, but uh, it's not synchronized. Actually, Cantor Rosenblatt made several Vitaphone short subjects, you know, lasting eight to 10 minutes, which were extremely popular in theaters with a large Jewish community near it. Well, in this film, as, as we see Warner Olin uh, singing uh, Kol Nidri, we know that it's really not him, and it's uh, Rosenblatt really supplying the, the voice for him there. And I think later on, like in the, supposedly the King of Jazz was the first big use of pre-recording where they recorded all the sequences and then the band just kind of faked it, so to speak. And again, there wasn't, I think, a direct time that each studio did... Uh, one way i think there was a little bit of each and i think particularly in jolson where he improvised so much i think it was really hard for him to pre-record something and then be able to perform it on the screen the exact same way he was an improviser <laughs> Now, the quality of the sound here, even if you're a film buff who has seen the jazz singer a number of times, is light years better than anything you've ever heard because what you've seen before came from an early 30s sound film transfer, and what you're hearing today is directly from the Vitaphone discs, which are rich in Western electric sound quality. Coffee Dance was actually a very popular nightclub in Los Angeles, and they uh, used Jolson's face all over the place to really promote the film in the club. Crossland is an interesting director. He certainly remembered for this film, certainly was ultimately a big moneymaker, but he uh, kind of deteriorated into making B pictures and even fewer and fewer of those and died in 1936, so just nine years after this. He's still a young man. Al Jolson, whose real name was Asa Jolson, was an immigrant from Russia and um, basically kind of got in, into show business, as many people did, uh, just playing kind of very small background roles and then slowly but very steadily in the early 1900s rising to become a musical comedy star to the point where Broadway musicals like Bombo, Big Boy, and, and quite a few others were written specifically for him and started making records in the teens. You know, really was covering every aspect of show business. So it was a very steady rise during the 1910s and certainly by the early 20s, his subtitle as the world's greatest entertainer was really true. I think one of the things that Jolson said that I always uh, think about a lot, he says it's, it's really hard to get to the top, but it's even harder to stay there. Some folks have won, some folks have none. So this is the first Vitaphoned scene, actually synchronized, filmed at the Sunset Warner Brothers Studios. Sent me a friend. Now, all the sound scenes uh, with Jolson singing were shot starting August 17th, 1927. And most of them, after rehearsal, were shot in the afternoon. The notes say from 1 to 5 p.m. They had three cameras filming simultaneously. And that's a system that was later used by uh, early television shows like uh, I Love Lucy and The Honeymooners. And the whole idea was to simultaneously capture the wide-angle, medium, and close shot 
because with this system, you couldn't stop and start. It had to be one straight through take. If you messed it up, you had to start all over again. Always fighting the boy. But it's I, there vision. A lot of these uh, tunes in this film are sort of Jolson hits because he had recorded these and made them big, big hits on, on the uh, phonograph recordings. So this was a real wonderful chance to see him redo his former hits. So there was a little bit of the old and then, of course, the new tunes that were written for this film. Yeah, and he was working at the time, Vince, for uh, what was the record uh, company? Brunswick. And then eventually Warner Brothers uh, bought Brunswick Recordings and they tried to, you know, put all this whole business thing together. Yeah, very smart. Yeah. But his records, I guess, first for Victor and then Columbia and then in the early 20s, he moved over, to, as he said, to uh, Brunswick, were extremely popular. Yes. So I think it's safe to say there was no bigger star than Jolson. And my suspicion, Vince, is when Jessel gave them a reason to uh, be able to get out of the jazz singer contract, they jumped at the opportunity because at this point they were able to get the biggest star in show business, a guy whose short subject, the Plantation Act, was already proving the strength of and power of Vitaphone and sound films. And, you know, let's face it, it was great all around uh, oh, yeah. for business and for, for the sound industry of really driving the studios to all switch to sound by 29. I'll, I'll kiss my boy. Dirty hands. Dirty Face! Dirty Hands and Dirty Face was a tune that Jolson had recorded around 1924, and it was really one of his showstoppers. Uh, very sentimental tune, and uh, which was perfect for Jolson. He could, he could really turn on that sentiment and, and really tear at your heart, which he does here, too. You can see the intercutting between this, which is a sound film. Famous catchphrase, you ain't heard nothing yet. Toot toot tootsie. Here's a silent shot. So you can see a little sped up. That's shot with a silent camera. Mm -hmm. uh, and they would carefully intercut to the precise number of frames, uh, no. this, the picture and sound. Toot Toot Tootsie was, of course, one of Jolson's big hits. And uh, the little backup band that uh, backs up Al Jolson, they were playing the actual printed stock orchestration that uh, thousands of bands around the world were playing or had played in the, in the early 1920s. And uh, it's interesting to hear that they made no attempt to make anything, uh, you know, really lush. This is really what you heard in nightclubs. This is the scene so many people refer to who were in the business at the time when they went into a theater and they worked in the then totally, other than this, totally silent motion picture industry. And they said, okay, this is it. This cinches it. Sam movies are here to stay. Now, this little clip with the whistling is a silent filmed insert, filmed a little later. Doing a little research, I learned later on in the scene we're going to see where he's with his mother at the piano that the uh, player was Bert Fisk, who I think was a band leader. Yeah. This is an interesting scene here with his hips. I've heard people comment that they thought Elvis Presley, who was very uh, avant-garde and, and risque on the Ed Sullivan show, <laughs> and they wouldn't shoot his hips, and here's Jolson giving it to you. This was outrageous. Yep. Now, 
see how comfortable he is. And when we get into some of the acting scenes, you'll see he was a little less comfortable. But here he's absolutely in his element. Oh, yeah. Back to silent. It's May McAvoy, who later made The Terror, which was the first sound in Vitaphone horror movie, which is a lost film now. In 1924, Jolson had signed a contract with famous director D.W. Griffith to make a feature called His Darker Self. And he was so panicked at the idea of acting, so he was, you know, comfortable singing, not comfortable acting. Was that the famous actor William Demarest in that scene, too? Yes, and we'll see more of him, but he was certainly big on stage. Friends of the Warner Brothers made a lot of shorts. Later, William Demarest known as Uncle Charlie on... My Three Sons. My Three Sons, yeah. <laughs> now, May McAvoy, who had made a lot of silent films for Warner Brothers and other studios, said that Jolson was, contrary to uh, you know some of the rumors on, on Jolson's ego, was extremely kind to her. And at the conclusion of filming, the jazz singer actually gave her a, an incredibly expensive necklace, which she returned. She figured she couldn't accept something that generous. But I think Jolson knew that this was the latest jewel that was going to be in his crown as the world's greatest entertainer. Tear in your voice. Very true. While Jolson was very apprehensive about the acting part of this film, I think his performance really belies that fact. He, he seems very comfortable, very sincere. You know, maybe a little schmaltzy, but very comfortable. I think that's to the credit of Alan Crossland, who was, uh, was really an underrated director, to be able to make Jolson feel comfortable not only with the new technology of Vitaphone, but also acting with other professional silent screen uh, actors and actresses. So uh, I think his performance, while the film itself is kind of sentimental and sometimes maudlin. Jolson does a good job. He does. Jolson was a very nervous fellow, and uh, there's many stories about him having a, a bucket on opening nights because he would get so physically ill because of his nerves that he'd have to use the bucket. Originally, while the uh, jazz singer was playing on Broadway with Jessel, Warner Brothers bought the screen rights at the time, intending it to be a silent film with Jessel. And the agreement with the uh, writers was that they could not release the jazz singer until the jazz singer Broadway show finished its national tour. So, you know, throughout all of this, Jessel really expected he was just going to definitely be there. And there were, we, we have at the Vitaphone Project posters that announced coming soon George Jessel in The Jazz Singer. So it was, it was, you know, fairly sudden turnaround after lots of announcements, but clearly the right choice with Jolson. The Vitaphone Project started in uh, 1991, and the uh, idea of that was to recognize that Hundreds, if not thousands, of films made between 1926 and 30 in the Vitaphone sound-on-disc system, where the disc 
was separate from the film and contained the sound portion of the film, uh, over the years were lost, melted down, broken, and so on, so that all that existed, if anything, was the picture portion, a mute picture portion. So we started the project in 1991 and sought out worldwide, uh, mainly in record collectors' hands, what discs did they have, and then what did Warner Brothers, the Library of Congress, and British Film Institute have picture-wise that you could match up and then restore and uh, present again for people to enjoy. The Jazz Singer started out as a Broadway play in 1925 with uh, George Jessel, had a very, very good run. The reviews were very similar to the film in terms of the plot, which was that it was highly sentimental, kind of dated or corny even then, but again, that did not keep the crowds away. People wanted to see this. Different songs in it. Obviously, Jolson put his signature on the film with his songs, but Jessel, you know, was a recording star and a singer. And the show had a very strong run for, uh, I think, almost two years. And then when it started its tour is when Warner Brothers started to firm up plans for the first silent and then the sound sequence feature. Now, Vince, you have some experience and some background on how they would score these things because they would use different songs either for mood or sometimes for what is going on with the action, uh, more so later on, but maybe you could uh, mention that. Well, I know this picture has a lot of different styles of music. We have a lot of classical music in the beginning and these little incidentals that were used for for dancing and, and then, of course, Jolson's pop tunes. So I think this this film really gave a little something to everyone out there in the audience, which was, which I think the Warner Brothers realized that uh, they had a varied bunch of folks coming and and they really covered all their bases. Now this scene, I mean, Jolson uh, is a good actor here, and I think as the filming went on and it only took about eight weeks to make this film, including the sound sequences. I mean, here, he's very natural, very comfortable. That's Myrna Loy on the left, by the way, who started in bit parts at Warner Brothers and by 29 was appearing in some of those Technicolor extravaganzas that Warner Brothers turned out and later, of course, as uh, Nora Charles in... The Thin Man. The Thin Man, yep. Now, supposedly, after the jazz singer and the success of his short plantation act, Jolson had told some friends that he was going to start taking it easy, forget this touring and, and stage work, four and five shows a day, and that filmmaking and sound was what he wanted to do. It was going to be an easy life. He would see thousands, tens of thousands more people with every performance. And, and he certainly was right. His next film after this, Vince, was The uh, Singing Fool. Now, The Singing Fool, somewhat similar plot, but cost a little less than The Jazz Singer and was the biggest money-making film until, do you know? Oh. Until Gone with the Wind. Wow. So it held its position for 11 years. So certainly, you know, if there's any question in anybody's mind that Jolson almost single-handedly put over the transition and the dawn of sound, those two films together really are a testament to that. Mm. 
Now, one of the sad things about the jazz singer is that the Warner brother who drove the transition to sound, who committed the studio to this process, was Sam Warner. And Sam Warner died uh, the day before the premiere of the film, very young. Some say, you know, worrying about this process and working so tirelessly on the on the shorts production as well as as this and uh, Don Juan and others and so on, and died in his early 40s. At the time this film was made, 1927, the way a typical patron would see a top performer, singer, dancer, comedian, whatever, would be in vaudeville. Vaudeville started in the late 1800s, kind of an offshoot of music halls and French vaudeville. And what it would be would be going to a theater, the biggest being the Palace Theater in, in New York, and they would see seven, eight, nine acts, the biggest act always being the one next to closing. This is where Burns and Allen started, Jack Benny started, and so on. And so if you wanted to hear a performer sing and talk, it was either without the picture, on a phonograph record at your home, or in a live theater, Broadway performance, uh, small uh, hamlets had their own theaters, or at a vaudeville house. Vaudeville pretty much was killed with the triple whammy of talking pictures, which many vaudevillians actually made, so they were kind of part of their own creation of the death of their industry, and radio, certainly at the same time coming in. And then really the third thing that happened was the Depression kind of finished it off, so many of the vaudevillians just uh, headed out to Hollywood and started new careers again. Yeah, I think it, it was so important because people had to go out to be entertained. Radio was this infancy, and there wasn't any TV to, to watch a varied act, so you went out, and it was really a part of people's lives to be entertained for popular culture to, to go out and see vaudeville shows, and uh, they were amazing, and it was an amazing starting point for so many careers that went on later to uh, be top entertainers in the radio field and television and film. So here, again, I think here's a great example, Vince, of some good acting uh, by Jolson. Some nice dissolves. All of this, of course, was done in the camera with a silent camera. This is, again, not a synchronized scene. This is post-dubbed, but done very well. What we're seeing now is post-dubbed by uh, Cantor Rosenblatt. So that was not synchronized at the time, was not filmed with sound at the time. Now, the microphones, Vince, that were used for this recording for the orchestra and for the individual scenes, they were kind of long, either large, round things, carbon mics, or long cylindrical things, right, which I know are major collector's items on eBay these days. Oh, yes. But they were able to give a good, fat, mid-range sound that the theater goers were just amazed to hear that fidelity. They'd be, where's the orchestra? Well, it's coming out of the, out of the speakers. They, they, it was a revelation. Now, let's talk a little bit about the sound technology at the time of this. Almost simultaneous with the development of the disc system that you're seeing and hearing here was the development, uh, perfection, I should say, of the sound on film systems still used today. So the film was actually 
containing the soundtrack on it. People would say, well, why would anybody use these cumbersome discs when you had, could do it sound on film? Well, for a few years, the sound quality, because the phonograph industry was a known perfected industry, the sound quality from a Warner Brothers Vitaphone film with the sound coming from a disc, if the disc was clean and you know not worn out, was actually far better than sound on film. That's uh, Roscoe Carnes, by the way, who just came up to Jolson. Uh, great character, comedian, did lots of features and even some of his own starring shorts uh, in the 30s. He was kind of the annoying guy in, what is it? It happened one night on the bus bugging Claudette Colbert, I think. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Oh, you're so right about the sound technology. I mean, the, the phonograph industry was almost 30 years old by this time. So they really had it together on how to capture wonderful full rich sound and and sound on film really was kind of thin and hissy and uh yeah and it uh, didn't have that bass i don't think that no. you, that you get even in this film no you could almost say although he's a great character comedian i mean you can almost say Jolson's underplaying and uh, Roscoe Carnes is overplaying a little bit. So these silent scenes, acting scenes, were done again during the summer of 27. Now when you hear about uh, Hollywood starting a film, you'll hear about it two years before it's finally released. People forget that. Just to keep the, the cash flow going, it was not unusual for a studio to be editing the film while they were making it and doing the publicity materials before it was done and have it out a month after it was completed. And that's kind of what happened here. In my regards to Broadway, so there's a great tie-in where the action and the music have uh, an affinity there, huh? Oh, absolutely. That was a, a, a real art in the 1920s where they would link up the actions on the film with a musical cue. Of course, Warner Brothers had a little success with this a few years later with Jimmy Cagney. Give my regards to Broadway on the Yankee Doodle Dandy. Oh, yeah. Now, Eugenie Besser kind of made a career out of specializing in uh, loving mothers, put-upon mothers, and so on. So... I'm not saying they did this, but they probably said, well, get me a Eugenie Besser type for the jazz singer. I think we have to remember that uh, probably until he, maybe uh, the code came in in 1934, the production code, it was more of the rule and the exception to have ethnic stereotypes of all kinds, black, uh, Jewish, Irish, and so on. And early talkies and shorts fence are just rampant with, you know, now we wince at some of this stuff, but that was normal on every front. And this, I mean, this is a great example. It also came out a lot of vaudeville too. There were many, many vaudeville acts like Van and Skank who did everybody. They, they <laughs> did black dialect. And, Jewish dialect. Chinese, I think. They Chinese. <laughs> no one was unscathed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, it started with when, when vaudeville really took off in the 1890s. Weber and Fields, who were two Jewish performers, one tall, one very short and round, they did a Dutch act. 
and they did the Dutch crosstalk act, uh, banter back and forth. So that was the rule. And, you know, as the production code in the early 30s kind of sanitized films, a lot of those and those people who made a living doing ethnic acts like Benny Rubin, great comic Benny Rubin. Harry I mean, Green. Yeah. yeah, these guys were out of work by about 1934. They, they had to do something else. I think Benny Rubin became a writer, but wow. it stopped. So now we're on the back lot now, even though we're on a New York street. Jolson was not in New York for any of the scenes. So this would be on the Warner's back lot uh, at the Sunset Boulevard Studios, which, uh, as far as I know, are long gone. Warner Brothers Studios now functioning are in Burbank and were the first national studios. Warner Brothers, because of the tremendous success and the, and the income from Vitaphone and Sound Films, ended up buying First National, which was a major studio chain in theater chain and so on. So that's where they are today and where many subsequent sound films were made by Vitaphone and others, 42nd Street, you know, all those great films. We mentioned earlier, but Vince, I think it bears repeating that you had this new technology and you could only see it when it first came out in uh, two theaters that were wired for sound for the Vitaphone system. So that was October 6th of 27. And by March of 28, there were already 230 theaters. And I think by the end of the year, there were thousands. So this revolution of the coming of sound driven in large part by the jazz singer, I mean, this was fast. You had no sound features before this with talking and music. And by 29, that's pretty much all you did have. This theme, Mother of Mine, really was one of the first major hit tunes written for a, uh, a sound film. And Jolson used this in his act. It was a very uh, moving piece of music. Mother of Mine is significant. First of all, it was another song that became popular for Jolson, but in fact uh, was the first song recorded specifically after the making of a talking picture. Before that, you really you had shorts, but there was no recording coming out of that for the public. But right after the making of the jazz singer, the first song recorded by Jolson on the Brunswick record label was Mother of Mine. And it was sold at the time that the jazz singer was in its initial circulation. So it really represents the very, very first time a record from a talking picture was issued to the public. This film really uh, is arriving in theaters, uh, first of all, primarily as a silent film. So there is still some mobility, mainly in the silent film scenes. You'll see in the jazz singer tracking shots, pretty much a lot of mobility, fluidity of the camera. The silent cinema had really just about reached its peak with just incredible visuals, being able to tell stories with relatively few title cards, lots of experimentation. 
but talking films had to be filmed in a studio with the cameramen being locked into kiosks that were immobile for the most part. They might have wheels on them, but the cameras for all intents and purposes were initially at least kind of nailed down to the ground. So there was all that mobility, fluidity uh, of great silent films was almost immediately lost when Warner Brothers in particular would graft a few talking scenes onto an already completed feature so that they could promote it as either a part talkie or with sound. So you would very often have beautifully fluid scenes reaching the peak of silent film artistry and then all of a sudden it would grind to a halt and you'd have two fairly uncomfortable actors talking to each other in an immobile scene and then go back again. So that didn't last very long, the whole part talkie uh, era, which was mainly to give some more value to already completed on the shelf silent films. Now, this segment, Blue Skies, was really put in to replace a previously shot scene with a song called It All Depends on You, which was a straight song. This is the scene I think you could say really put the talkies over. Wouldn't you say, Vince? Yes, and uh, even fellows like Woody Allen have taken this scene and used it in his films. And this really was, with the improvised uh, talk at the end here, this was one of the major uh, leap forwards. A lot of mythology around the scene. That it was totally ad-lib, that's not true. His contract for the short and the feature both said he was to talk and sing, so it was always planned. There was a little outline of what was to be said, but, you know, he kind of improvised and by this time was quite comfortable in front of the camera. Oh, darling, will you give me something? What? You'll never get. Shut your eyes, Mama. Shut them for little Jackie. Oh, I'm going to steal something. <laughs> I'll give it back to you someday, too. You see if I don't. Mama, darling, if I'm a success in this show... Well... Now, when you watch his short, The Plantation Act, again, there's a lot of just easy banter back and forth, use of his catchphrases and so on. But once he got going, he was comfortable. Oh, yeah, I think all his years of at the Winter Garden, the headlining there in his own theater, the Jolson Theater... He just uh, could ad-lib and just go on and on and on. He was a, a real natural on that stage. Whether it was a thousand people or his mom there. Who, who is telling you? What do you mean, no? Yes, you wear pink or else. Or else you wear pink. <laughs> we think it's Jolson vamping on the piano himself. Actually, that was an off-camera musician by the name of Bert Fisk just playing just outside a camera range with a microphone of his own while Jolson's doing his discussion there. Now, Mama, Mama, stop now. You're getting kittenish. Mama, listen, I'm going to sing this like I will if I go on the stage, you know, with this show. I'm going to sing it jazzy. Now, get this. Blue sky, smiling at me, 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 nothing but... Blue Skies is a brand new song at this point, being in 1926, and... Um, Irving Berlin, of course, had many, many hits, but I think Jolson's treatment of this really uh, shows how he could take this kind of uh, sad ballad and jazz it up a bit. So he said stop, and of course, now we're back to silent. So there was uh, the first real dialogue and music scene together. And again, 
that was a scene that so many reviewers and patrons commented on. And uh, when he did the Singing Fool about a year later, that was probably about 75% synchronized singing, talking, and, and so on. But if you were going to single out one scene in this film that really put sound over, I think we just saw that. Now, this is an interesting scene here, which the Warner Brothers parodied in that uh, cartoon that came out many years later, where the father comes home and throws the son out. And uh, the, the name of the cartoon, of course, is I Love to Singer, which is just a very funny cartoon with Owl Jolson. Oh, with Al Jolson, yes. You know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about Jolson's ego. Certainly some of it is warranted based on his talent. There's the old story about uh, one of the vaudevillians said that Jolson, would, after he would be on, he would be backstage, he would turn the water on in the sink so he would drown out the applause <laughs> that the other performers got. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. Jolson also gave free concerts on Sundays. Theaters were closed on Sundays, and he would regularly do concerts. And, you know, some would say it was to fuel his ego, but they were, you know, usually attended, and he would go on for hours and hours and hours. Now, one of the interesting things, we talked a little bit about Alan Crossland directing this and, and a number of other sound films and then kind of petering out in his career and be pictures and dying young. But Vince, do you know which famous director, here's a trivia question for you, which famous director is the one who urged the Warner Brothers to buy the play and who wanted to direct it? Do you know? I don't this know. Is, this is real obscure. So okay. it was Ernst Lubitsch wow. of all people who not only wanted to buy it, but can you imagine the the Lubitsch touch on this film? That'd be very, <laughs> think it, a very different film. It, it would be very different, but I'm, I'm sure it's a masterpiece also. Yeah. Well, the other interesting thing, Vince, is that Jolson, he was the inspiration for two of the biggest, most popular singers that followed him. Bing Crosby. And Frank Sinatra. And we're not talking about them saying that just to say that because it sounded nice. Both Crosby and Frank Sinatra, honestly, from the deep, you know, deep in their heart, truly idolized Jolson. Crosby had uh, Jolson on his radio show a number of times, and they, he, they really admired him from a performance standpoint, from a personality standpoint, and also I think a lot of the business acumen that uh, Bing Crosby became famous for was derived from Jolson, driving hard bargains at the, at the contract table, owning parts of things to the point where I guess Crosby ended up buying part of Ampex, the, the pioneering company for uh, magnetic recording. You know, 20 years earlier, it was Jolson partnering with the Warner Brothers on Vitaphone. So both Sinatra and Crosby certainly admired Jolson as a performer. And uh, while they had very different styles, that admiration really shone through. Oh, yes. And even the early Perry Como, when you listen to his early recordings in the 30s with Ted Weems, all I can think of is Jolson. It, it, there was so much influence coming from Jolson. It's, it's amazing. leave my house you jazz singer and this is what we see in the cartoon yeah. uh, later on and in, in late in the 1930s called I Love to Singer where the character the lead character is a owl Jolson O-W-L and uh, it's, it's very effective 
with the Jolson of 1936 and the Jolson of 1927. So it's an interesting uh, put together. It just shows more of the uh, creative uh, genius of the Warner Brothers uh, cartoon staff. Now, that came out in 1936, and that song, I Love to Sing It, was from a Jolson Warner Brothers feature of that year, which was obviously a lot slicker than this film, called The Singing Kid. And he does that song with uh, one of my favorites. Cab Calloway. Fantastic, fantastic film. And, you know, Jolson really kind of adapted to the times. I mean, he kept, there was usually a Mammy song, uh, even if it was a parody or whatever, but even in the mid-30s when he was making features for Warner Brothers, like Wonder Bar and uh, Go Into Your Dance and Seeing Kid, he kept his personality, but uh, much smoother, slicker, breezier. He was appearing on radio by that time also on a regular basis. And Vince, I think his first show, radio show, didn't have an audience, did it? That's right. He really depended on a live audience. That was his way. He... They reacted, and then he reacted to them. And he really was kind of, I wouldn't call flop sweating, but he he really wasn't in his element, which I think he felt a little bit in the film industry because he really played off a big audience. So they finally started bringing in a big audience, and when he would hear the laughter and the applause, and and, uh, that really got him going, and he he really uh, uh, was a very big success on radio. Yeah, he uh, basically had starred in a number of radio shows throughout the 30s, the Shell Chateau, uh, the Kraft uh, Music Hall, after Paul Whiteman left it. Did a lot of radio, but certainly was not the star in the mid-30s that he was in the teens of the 20s. By contrast, his wife, Ruby Keeler, became quite a big star in Warner Brothers musicals like 42nd Street and Footlight Parade and, you know, just a litany of other things. And certainly that put a stress on the marriage uh, and eventually that marriage dissolved. Now, Mae McAvoy, who plays Al's love interest, I mentioned earlier, uh, starred in a early sound horror film called The Terror, which the discs are around, but there's no film. It's alleged, and uh, I can't confirm it, that she had a slight lisp. And what happened was there were relatively few stars whose careers going from silent to sound were ruined by sound uh, itself. There was usually underlying things, but the perhaps slight lisp she may have had, plus the hyping that in the press, really finished her career, and she really didn't make too many more films after The Coming of Sound. We probably ought to mention also about the the whole idea of disc recorded shorts and features. Keep in mind, by the early 30s, these things were relics other than big films like The Jazz Singer and, you know, a few others singing Fool. And they didn't have or weren't seen to have any economic value. So starting in the early 30s, the discs were discarded, they were lost, thrown out. And, you know, one of the efforts with restoration through not only our project, the Vitaphone Project, but UCLA and Warner Brothers, Library of Congress, British Film Institute, is to partner with record collectors who worldwide have these discs in their own hands. And what we do is we say, well, what do we have only picture for? 
that we're missing sound. And then whenever possible, we uh, get the loan or, or the donation of the disc and sync them up. So since The Jazz Singer was such a big film, there's lots of copies of that. There are probably four or 500 shorts for which we have either nothing or only a picture and no sound. And you know, who knows when some of these things will, will turn up. Hopefully this DVD is going to create a bunch of interest and beat the drum and maybe we might find some more films and discs out there. Yeah, so any of you folks who are listening to this, if you know of any of these big 16-inch shellac records that say Vitaphone or MGM or anything, don't assume we know about them because uh, I guess so far there's been about 85 shorts and about 12 features that have been restored just through the generosity of, of collectors worldwide. Typical silent title card there with that characteristic Warner Brothers lettering. I don't know what font that is. And a little thematic picture in the background. Now, when this film premiered, you know, it was not the big hit people today believe it to be. Uh, Richard Barrios wrote a great book called Song in the Dark, and he had mentioned that even the morning of the premiere, October 6, 27, they still had tickets available, <laughs> even though they said Jolson was going to be there. But after it was shown, then then it really took off. But, you know, it was not this heralded transition and, uh, you know, landmark event until after the word of mouth really started spreading. And I think one of the bittersweet things about this film is... It eventually was a wonderful experience for the Warner Brothers, and it it changed the world, and it really uh, proved to them that they were uh, doing something in the right direction, and they got a lot of fame and fortune. But I think Harry Warner said, uh, this is all great, but we lost Sam, you know, and, and yeah. we, well, nothing will ever bring him back. So it was kind of a little bittersweet it for was. them. Yeah. In fact, the Warner Brothers, because of Sam's death, were not at the premiere. So here's like the the major event in the history of Warner Brothers, still a vibrant, productive studio today, with their fortunes largely made on this film. And they weren't at the premiere because uh, their brother had died. Very sad. Sam Warner, again, he was in his early 40s and died of an infection. I mean, things that today people would, you know, you get a little penicillin and so on, would not die over. There are just countless people. You read in old copies of Variety events, band leaders who, who die of a tooth, you know, tooth infection. Uh, you know, just, uh, I guess, the great Eddie Lang. Yes. What did he die? Tonsillectomy. Yeah. And Benny Moten died on the operating table. You know, the, it wasn't the great world it is today uh, as far as medical procedures. Yeah, so he was, you know, however, you know, while he died uh, officially uh, of, of a fairly simple infection, certainly he worked tirelessly on promoting this. He was the one who went to Bell Labs and saw the demonstration in 1925 of Vitaphone. He's the one that put the financing together from the big banks. I mean, so, you know, you could certainly say that that pressure hastened uh, his death and, uh, you know, he might have been uh, not as worn down and be able to fight the infection. Well, you know, we'll never know. One of the other myths, by the way, is that Warner Brothers was a poverty row studio, and uh, that was absolutely not the case. It was always a very well-financed studio. They had great relationships with the major banks, who certainly underwrote the very uh, costly transition to Vitaphone. They had major stars like uh, John Barrymore. So this was probably, you know, slightly under the top echelon of studios like uh, MGM and, and Paramount and rapidly obviously became more profitable than all of them. But this was not some 
tiny studio on its last legs, and this was its last hope. They had a full roster of silent films every year. Interestingly, after this film came out and slowly but surely built a following, the only two companies making sound films at all were Warner Brothers, making many, many short subjects of, of all varieties, and Fox, Fox Movie Tone, which was a sound on film version. So there was kind of a, a gap or a black hole for a, for a short period of time after the jazz singer came out in late 1927. Fox Movie Tone, for the most part, relied on their highly successful newsreel, but they made relatively few talking shorts or features. Most of movie tone was music and sound effects for features. Warner Brothers announced that all their future features were going to have a Vitaphone score. Not talking, but music and synchronized sound effects. If somebody knocks on the door, you would hear it. You'd hear the, the mood music. And then slowly they started inserting short dialogue scenes. And uh, later, more and more, you know, we go from maybe 10% dialogue to maybe 80%, like in uh, Singing Fool. Then certainly by 1929, it was 100% talking. But that was a slow process over most of 1928 with all the other studios waiting it out to see what the public really wanted. Because they'd been burned before on talking pictures and didn't want to get burned again. But I would say by around September of 1928, it was very clear to all the studios that they had to get into talkies or they'd be out of business. Musical background is conducted by Louis Silvers, who Jolson had worked with earlier on in the 20s on Broadway and wrote one of his biggest hits, April Showers. Yeah. Now, didn't Jolson put his name on a lot of songs? Whether he had an involvement or not, he would get his cut and get his publicity? Well, yes. Uh, this was kind of a, a little bit of what happened back in those days and, and probably still happens today. And I think a lot of writers went along with it because Jolson was so big and so acclaimed that if Jolson sang your song, you were going to sell a lot of recordings, a lot of sheet music, and uh, everyone was going to make a lot of money. So it was nobody, a good... Nobody was complaining, I guess, Nobody huh? was complaining. <laughs> they had laughed all the way to the bank. <laughs> Now, the jazz singer, you know, had a, a very long life. I mean, most films would be uh, played for three days in the theater and then they'd, they'd move on. They were gone before you knew it. The jazz singer, which came out in October 27, was often used as Warner Brothers would open up new theaters, even in 1928 and 29. Very, very often, the first feature that was shown at that new theater would be the jazz singer. And people would go back to see it time and time again, which is why it made so much uh, money. Jolson also participated in a short that Warner Brothers made specially for theater openings. I mean, these theaters, sometimes two, 3,000 seats, they were true palaces. And imagine a two-reeler, which would first have some specifics to, you know, we're, we're at the Atlanta Warner Brothers Theater opening up, welcome everybody tonight, you know, and you'd hear from Richard Dix and Al Jolson and, and other performers from the, the stock company at Warner Brothers. And then there'd be, you know, kind of a, just a generic portion. Now that actor there is Richard Tucker. 
He often played bank presidents. So you'll remember him in Lauren Hardy's Pardon Us. He was always that dignified businessman, sometimes crooked, not usually, but sometimes. Now, when Warner Brothers went full-fledged into feature film production with sound, the Sunset Studios, which were built for silence, really weren't suited for that. And the first national studios in Burbank, which they ended up buying, was really a top-of-the-line studio. So they, they soundproofed that, equipped it with all the latest sound equipment. And that is where virtually all of the Warner Brothers films we think of from the late 20s on were made. Now, Warner Olin is such a good actor, Vince. I mean, you hear, I mean, you don't think of Charlie Chan here. You know, you think of, you know, a cantor. Of cantor, sure. Now, Jolson, you were talking earlier about I Love to Sing It. Jolson was always a popular target of caricature. And, uh, you know, frequently in cartoons and, and films and so on, some song from the jazz singer would be the one that they would select for the parody. Oh, sure. I've seen Bugs Bunny. <laughs> uh, do a little Jolson, and uh, everybody did a little Jolson. Yeah. I mean, he was that big. Yep. Everybody wanted a little piece of uh, what he was about. Yeah. Now, great comedy team that made some Vitaphone shorts. Willie and Eugene Howard, a fantastic Jewish comedy team, very popular on Broadway and radio. Willie Howard, who was the kind of the comedian, his brother Eugene was the straight man, did a fantastic Jolson. And in the late 40s, he was still making 78s parodying Jolson, Jessel and Eddie Cantor talking to each other. Wow. And it's just, uh, you know, it just didn't end. And of course, Jolson had a resurgence in his, his, in his career uh, in the 40s with the Jolson story. I mean, he was a bigger star than ever after some lean years. Mm -hmm. uh, Georgie Price, that wonderful short. Yep. Where he does Jolson and Canner and yeah, I think if you had imitators, Jolson was always one of the ones they would do. Mm -hmm. Now you know the jazz singer also kind of drove some real you know other Jewish series. The Coens and the Kellys was very popular at Universal. Uh, had a lot of similar humor throughout it, and that carried into the talkie era with uh, Charlie Murray and George Sidney, I think. If you think about how much Jolson is in the picture, while he's certainly the star and prominent throughout, there are a lot of scenes that they were able to film without him. So that's why they were able to really accomplish this completionist film in, in just a little over eight weeks. use of post-dubbing, or in other words, recording first, playing back, and having the performers uh, mimic to that. First of all, some of the earliest sound systems that came out in the teens in England, Harry Lauder made a bunch of these, where they actually had took the commercial record and the performer would lip sync to their own performance. And the reason was you could make that original record in a controlled environment in a studio, whereas if you, if you depended upon the, uh, the frailties of recording live, it was, it was tough. But pretty much the films from the short films and the features with actual direct recording, 1926, 27, 28, didn't use any of that. It was all just what you saw was what you got. Thank you. 
I think this is uh, wonderful seeing a Broadway show at all these different angles. This is even probably a little bit more uh, adventurous than like the Coconuts that came out, you know, a few years later. With the Marx Brothers, yeah. Yes. I think we maybe this is the moment to put in perspective the whole idea of blackface and the use of blackface because uh, at the time it was a tradition. It was not looked at as as I think we rightly look at today as uh, you know a, a racist practice and insulting to blacks, but it was very prominent. Eddie Cantor, I mean, many many performers made their living doing all or part of their act in blackface. Now the interesting thing is, and when we see Jolson performing in blackface, we need to realize here. There were performers who were imitating parodies, uh, caricatures of blacks. And then there were white performers like Jolson and Kander especially, who used the blackface, uh, performed just as they normally would. They did not put on any accent. They were not attempting to be black performers. And what they did was they used the blackface to highlight their hands, to highlight their mouth and eyes so that the people in the back row at a theater could see them. So when we see Jolson uh, doing Mammy in a little bit, you know, we realize he's not parodying a black performer. He's using that to highlight his strongest features as a performer, his eyes and his mouth. He continued to use blackface in his films into the mid-30s and even when he made some Fox features into the late 30s when it was pretty much uh, abandoned. There were also black entertainers, the famous Ziegfeld star, Burt Williams, also blacked up, as they said back then. So you can see the whole point of how it emphasizes the features. But again, it's something that faded very rapidly, kind of when sound came in and the, the whole idea of uh, ethnicity being largely purged from films pretty well stopped. Eddie Cantor in uh, Whoopi, another good example where he performs in blackface, but he performs as Eddie Cantor. He doesn't perform uh, imitating anybody right. or any ethnic group. And there was no put down. They, they were very sincere and very wholesome performances. There wasn't, as far as I've never seen, any uh, any derogatory things. It was just another time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think if we look at this film, you know, a film of its time, and that was the norm, and obviously out of place today, but a real tradition. I guess they originally used, instead of the grease paint we saw, they called it, what, burnt cork? Yes. Where they would have actually burned cork, and they would rub that on their face. Actually, uh, a film, Vince, that was recently rediscovered after being lost for many years with Eddie Cantor performing at the Ziegfeld, I think it was the Ziegfeld Midnight Frolic at Paramount Shore from 29, Long Lost. And it shows Cantor supposedly coming upstairs to the top of the Winter Garden, which still stands, and performing with band leader Paul Paul Ash, not no, Paul Ash. Eddie, Eddie Elkins. Eddie Elkins. And he comes up supposedly from the stage of Whoopi down below in blackface and he performs there. So that's 29. Mm -hmm. It's a shame that, you know, sound film was really cut short. May McAvoy's career. 
but she always had very fond memories of working with Jolson, something not everybody did. I think the antithesis of this is uh, Wonder Bar, which Jolson owned, performed on the stage and uh, made for Warner Brothers in 1934. And that had an all-star cast with Kay Francis and Dick Powell and was actually very rare that the Dirty Laundry was aired publicly and apparently Jolson alienated everyone. Dick Powell said all the best songs that Jolson had cut out and he got them. And that was a an extremely unhappy set with a lot of egos floating around, but this was not the case. I think Jolson realized this was a golden opportunity he wasn't gonna miss up on. He was definitely on the climb here to, uh, to bigger and better things. to certainly the most dramatic part of the film. We've talked with the Vitaphone Project folks and talked to many people. And when I see anybody who looks like they're over the age of uh, 80, I will frequently ask them, you know, what film do you remember when sound came in? Vince, it's always a Jolson film, often this with Jolson singing Mammy, which we'll see in a few minutes, uh, or The Singing Fool. And I saw The Singing Fool recently, and I got to tell you, I was seeing it with my wife, Judy, and Judy was crying when Sonny Boy, <laughs> Davy Lee, dies. And uh, it's still got a lot of power. It's it's corny, but it's very powerful. Oh, most definitely. His uh, performance in the Plantation Act, when I saw this live, when the first showing at the Film Forum in New York City, people broke into applause. And then Jolson addressed the audience. They said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And the hair on the back of my head raised. Jolson had this power coming from the screen from many, many years ago. Yeah. It was like he took a bunch of bows at the end of that short and he knew when to pause and the audience was laughing. It was like, how does he know? Yes. <laughs> and he knew. He knew. There was certainly a recognition that Jolson was, you know, many, many, many times the star of Jessel. And, you know, I wonder, in retrospect, if the film would have driven the, the dawn of sound and the, and the transition to sound if it had Jessel. Because Jessel eventually made a film for the true B picture studio, Tiffany, called, I think you've seen it too, Lucky Boy. Yes. Which uh, was actually shot silent, and then they went back about a year later and put a whole bunch of sound sequences in. And I, I got to tell you that, you know, Jessel was entertaining, but he was not a Jolson. No. Do you remember the song from that one? Because they sing it like 83 times. Baby Rosemary, the wonderful Rosemary who made a Vitaphone short, also was with us when we saw Lucky Boy with Jessel, and she knew Jessel well as a kid. And after the sixth reprise of, do you remember the song? My Mother's Eyes. My Mother's Eyes, she got up. <laughs> and she said, Ron, there's only so much My Mother's Eyes I can take. <laughs> and she knew the guy. Wow. But, you know, I think it was Jolson. She probably would have stayed. Uh, but it was a relatively popular film. 
but was far from the hit that The Jazz Singer and The Singing Fool and the other Jolson films were. Jessel continued to be an MC in vaudeville, which was rapidly dying, did some radio work in the 30s and 40s, became a film producer for Fox Studios, uh, producing some musicals for Fox in the 1940s, married famous silent star uh, Norma Talmadge, and did a lot of guesting on radio, including uh, on some of Jolson's programs. seen stills of uh, Broadway shows, you know, little touring companies, whatever. That looked very authentic, didn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. Still silent, but it's going to switch to Vitaphone in a second. I'll tell you when. Here we go. So this is a song that he recorded shortly after the completion of the film for Brunswick, and it was sold when the film was in, uh, in theaters. The production notes say he completed this in just two takes, which is amazing for such new technology and was shot for any of you who care on August 18th, 1927. How's Great. that for trivia? Wonderful. <laughs> we need that. <laughs> Couldn't live without it. We see in, in the sound sequences in the jazz singer, uh, you know, kind of the use of the technology, which was already advancing at a rapid pace. You had multiple microphones hanging just outside a camera range or perhaps hidden behind something. So it was not like one single microphone. To the best of our knowledge, they did not have camera booms or the, you know, the long sticks uh, holding the uh, microphones above the actors. But what they did, some of the pictures that have survived from productions of the jazz singer and some of the shorts show that you had uh, microphones hanging by a bunch of ropes and strings uh, from different angles and so on so they could move it around just out of camera range. This is interesting where you have a sound sequence, silent shot there, title cards. I mean, you have all technologies working together uh, in this one scene. When things go wrong and they don't want me mother, I still... Now, one of the uh, rumors is that they shot all of the Jolson singing scenes separately over nine days, as I think I mentioned earlier almost as individual standalone shorts. And there was some thought that if they didn't use them, they could have released them as separate Vitaphone shorts to theaters, which were, were then being sold to theaters to precede the feature films at theaters throughout the, uh, the country. That never happened because obviously it all works together here in this feature. I know I'm not to blame so Jolson's, I mean, he's at the, at the peak of his power here. He's got the great pipes. He's got the, the hand motions that were famous, uh, all the drama. But folks who saw him in person say there was really no film that could capture what he did to an audience. He played off the audience great. He had to have a live audience to yep. play against, and they both influenced each other, sure. Yeah. I 
Now, a caricature of this, or I should say a reproduction of that scene, him in blackface, was on the ads where all you saw was pure black and pure white. His eyes, his mouth, the tie, I think. And that was on the record sleeves. It was on the movie posters, everything. It kind of became an icon for the transition to sound. Now, the sound you're hearing is so much better than what you, you've heard over the years with the, the jazz singer. Jazz singer was really in release through about 1931. And what people have heard since then on television prints and so on was a, at the time, transfer from the discs with that kind of limited technology to a sound on film version. So it was another generation removed. So obviously you lost something. The technology wasn't the greatest. And what we're hearing here, you're hearing more of the sound right out of the grooves of those discs because we, you, we went right from the discs directly to this DVD. So you get a lot more sound than anybody really has heard in, in 80 years. Unless you were in a theater in the late 20s, this is the best sound uh, for the jazz singer anybody's heard. And the best picture I've seen, too. Yeah, this yeah. is an unbelievable print. Now, you can make the argument that her acting is a little over the top here. Oh, still that silent picture, uh, which is, this is a silent picture. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It went along with that. Yeah. You know, a little, little exaggerated. Yeah. You can kind of understand why the film even with the technology that had to be used for the sound portion, didn't cost that much. Because there's no big, massive scenes with, you know, you look at uh, Buster Keaton's The General, which came out the same year, and uh, in one scene where he wrecks that locomotive, they spent most of the budget on the jazz singer just on that one, just, you know, to get that superb shot. Yeah. So, I mean, there was nothing here. The, the money went to Jolson, as it should have. I mean, Jolson is the selling portion of this film, not not any big sets or, or big scenes or anything like that. Today, you know, you'd have like 10 explosions by this point in the film. <laughs> no expensive props there. <laughs> yeah, right. The door. Yeah. <laughs> so here we have the, you know, the reconciliation scene. This is the kind of scene, you know, Jolson, as Vince, you said, he's a big warrior, uh, you know, would, fret over and so on, but I think he does a pretty creditable job. Oh, yeah. Does a very similar scene with Davy Lee, his son dying in uh, The Singing Fool. Mm -hmm. Now, Louis Silvers did a lot of work for Warner Brothers as, as Sam progressed, right, Vince? Oh, yeah. I think uh, he got in at the right time, and they used him on uh, quite a few early motion pictures. He was a prominent uh, Broadway uh, conductor, and he had worked with Jolson in the past, 
his orchestra, I'm sure, was made up of uh, musicians there on the West Coast. Didn't he do some of the early musicals too? Did he do some of the sound on the early musicals? Or uh, I know it was Leo Forbstein who who succeeded him in the early 30s. But Silver's, yes. I know, on the those all-star things like show of shows and the Desert Song. I mean, all those musicals uh, that Warner Brothers did. He it was Silver's. Yes, he he had a lot of great Broadway show experience, and he fitted this new technology real wonderfully. So what did this film do? This this film brought together in one film a dynamic performer known throughout the world in a perfected system that truly synchronized the lips with the picture. That was a, a, a main falling down point for every other system. There was, there was some mechanical problem that uh, things would drift out. And, and while Vitaphone could drift out of synchronization, generally it worked pretty well. You had the realism of electrical recording, which many people had never heard before. They still had acoustic Victrolas in their homes, so they heard sound that sounded real. It had a great range. It had a great bass. It, it sounded like people really talked, and people hadn't heard that. And finally, you had the technology catching up with the attempt to make talking pictures by being able to fill a theater with that sound with modern loudspeaker technology. Before... Like the Edison system, you had the sound, acoustic sound coming from a little horn phonograph, and you're trying to fill a theater. Well, people could barely hear what was going on. Now you had this great quality sound from a great performer able to fill a whole theater. So what happened here in The Jazz Singer, all that kind of coalesced. The shorts were starting to take off, but it was really Jolson's personality that really, I think, triggered the floodgates for talking pictures to really become the norm within two years. So, you know, it was it was certainly the most successful, commercially successful sound film, while it wasn't the first. And then pretty much after that, you can chart the progress of sound films from the premiere of The Jazz Singer. I mean, everything took off from that film on. Not only at Warner Brothers, but all the other studios falling in line and realizing if they didn't, they'd be out of business. So it certainly was the impetus for the very rapid transition to sound in, in under three years. The whole industry changed because of the jazz singer. I think uh, the box office of silent films before the jazz singer also, they were doing okay, but it was slumping a little bit. And I think the novelty of sound really was a great shot in, in the arm to the film industry. People really got excited about this. And, you know, people in the 1920s were very excited about everything, the new technology that was coming out. Uh, you know, radio, a fellow that crosses over, you know, in, a, in an airplane by himself, uh, talking f pictures, wow. And this, it just, it came at the right time, I think.
Now, th this time, remember, every other feature film out there, including the others from Warner Brothers, but certainly the major studios, MGM, Paramount, First National, all of them, were silent. And uh, after the jazz singer really caught fire and took off, the studios kind of banded together and said, we're not going to go to sound unless all of us go to sound. And whatever sound system they were going to pick, they were going to not go with Vitaphone because they didn't want to enrich the Warner Brothers and admit that they were there first. So for a good almost full year after the jazz singer, it was business as usual with the other studios. But as the shorts took off and more and more Warner Brothers features appeared with sound sequences, there was just no ignoring anymore by the studios. They were either going to make the transition or they were going to be left in the dust and be out of business. So that transition of sound from 1926 to 29, almost the full first year of that, uh, the studios were doing next to nothing. It was really later, 1928, that MGM made their first sound film, for example. So there was almost a year during which the Warner Brothers and certainly Fox Studios with their Fox movie tone sound on film system really had the sound film market completely to themselves. atonement scene actually was also released and made available to theaters separately as a standalone performance which is you know fairly unusual to happen with a feature film now vince you mentioned the warner brothers book brunswick records when they were kind of diversifying and getting into everything right Yes, radio and even some publishing, too. They uh, they were really putting all the pieces together. Unfortunately, the Depression hit. Yeah, I think a lot of the theaters that they bought, or some of them, didn't they even turn into miniature golf courses? Something like that. That was popular, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah when the Depression hit, it, was, it hit hard. And the studio, especially Warner Brothers, you know, had expanded so rapidly in the late uh, 20s that when the Depression hit, I mean, they were they were really hit hard. And like most of the studios, they, uh, you know, they skirted bankruptcy and eventually came back. But there was a period there where some of the studios were possibly going to go under and just disappear entirely. And some of the smaller ones did. I think also another wonderful thing about Al Jolson is that he uh, had a very strong, dynamic, high tenor voice, which was great for theaters, big theaters, which did not have microphones at that time. And he was able to project to the very last uh, row of the house. And also the early days of recording were very crude in, in, in a sense because the performers had to uh, get in front of this large horn to record. And Jolson had a perfect voice for that. He enunciated perfectly and uh, just had enough sheer volume and and was able to put a lot of comedy into his performances and in in truth he did jazz up the pop songs of the day and and in truth he really had this element of a jazz artist very early people say something negative about him being a jazz singer but i'm one of the people who believes that he was a part of the jazz age and he was a jazz singer 
in a very early form. Now, this film was remade by Warner Brothers with, you know who was uh, Jolson's replacement? Do you remember? Danny Thomas? Danny Thomas. Yeah, that, I, that's a kind of a stretch. <laughs> Make room for Danny. process of model work there of Broadway. This is the scene that so many people remember going in and saying that, you know, this is the death knell of silent pictures right here. Now, Jolson did this in uh, the records, production records, say total of three takes. Uh, not sure which take is used here. Here's a good example of the white gloves, the black face highlighting his eyes and his mouth and the white shirt with the black tie so that people in the back row could enjoy the full performance. My Mammy was a big hit for Jolson back in the early 1920s. I think that was really probably after Swanee, I think his really most significant hit. It wasn't specific or created for this film. This was one of his, in his arsenal of hits. Yeah, crowd pleaser. Yeah. People really... You know, identified with this. Uh, written by Walter Donaldson, who wrote so many wonderful pop songs in the 19s, 20s, and a little bit of the 30s. This was, I think, the tune most people remember Al Jolson being in blackface and getting down on one knee and uh, really just giving all of his emotion in, in his performance. It's on my mammy I'm talking about. Nobody else is. My little mammy. This is really the last scene of the film, and this is what stayed with people as they're going out, out of the theater, as, as they had around-the-clock showings. People would see this at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. There was such a demand. And really, you could say at the end, the jazz singers would start it at all. It was not the first sound film, not the first talking picture, but it was the one with such an impact that it, it really drove a whole industry to the transition of sound, and, you know, we can't minimize that. My grandparents brought my dad to see this. He was two or three years old. He didn't remember it, but he was told he went to see the jazz singer. Yeah, it stays with you forever. Mm -hmm. 